بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم This two day program is actually a completion of a five day program I did almost exactly one year ago uh, so initially some people had asked me to repeat the topics that I did last year but I decided not to the topics that we did last year are all uploaded on YouTube So if there's anybody who is new and who was not here last year then you will be able to access last year's lectures on YouTube and at some point here uh, Sajad who is sitting in the front and Farooq these two are people you can turn to with any technical or otherwise any questions that you have all right so I will from time to time refer to those uh, lectures so that you can 
be refreshed or be reminded of what I mentioned last time. All right. Very briefly, in fact, I will just go over uh, the topics of last year with you and just make maybe one or two comments about each one. So the first topic that we did last year was called Introduction to Ethics and Theology. And that we spoke about Iman and what constitutes Iman. Then I use that to illustrate a particular tool of Islamic learning, which I call the workshop. So I have to repeat these things so that you understand what these terms are. The workshop means that whenever you want to understand anything in Islam, you have to look at all the verses in Quran on that topic, all the hadith from the Sunnah of the Prophet on that topic, all the commentaries of tafsir on all of those verses, all of the explanations of, by the Hadith scholars on those Hadith, right? And then, well, uh, that I'll start with that right now. So what would that mean? So if I wanted to ask you or we wanted to investigate the question, what is Iman? So we have to look at every single verse in Quran where Allah Subhanahu mentions and talks about Iman. Every Hadith that mentions or talks about Iman and the entire scholarly tradition on the topic of Iman. So then we had a whole session where obviously now that's impossible to do in a short course, but I took a selection of verses and a selection of hadith on iman, and that was sufficient to show the second major tool of Islamic learning, which is that when you build the workshop, which means you assemble all of the sacred, revelatory, primary texts on any topic, you will find that there will be multiple meanings that emerge. Sometimes those meanings will be diverse. Sometimes they might at first glance appear to be contradictory to one another or in some type of tension with one another. So then there's a second tool which is trying to sift and sort out those meanings. All right. The first thing in that, in that second process is you have to be genuinely open. If you go into the research having already decided what the meaning is, then that will color or what we call bias your perspective and your analysis. Then you're not really searching for a meaning. You are searching for those meanings that you already agreed with. And then you will naturally, and this is what a lot of people do, they will pluck the particular texts that support their meaning and they will hide or they will suppress the verses and hadith that don't support their meaning. But they will find something that supports their meaning, so they got their footnote. And now they're referenced, and then when an average person sees their paper or hears their speech, because they quote one verse or one hadith, they think that this is mudallal, that this is something that is necessarily established and proven. So this is what we did in the first session. The second thing we talked about was ethics, and that in Islam, ethics is quite different from the way it is in the secular Western world. And that was the whole presentation. Then another thing, I'm just going to recap to you all the morning sessions first and then all the afternoon sessions second. The second thing that we looked at in the afternoon, so the third thing we looked at, the first was the theological concept of Iman, the second was ethics. The third I looked at science and this was the session called Science, Rationality and the New Atheism. And now basically that historically the vast majority of scientists did believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and even right now science, if taught properly, from a person who has yaqeen and iman in their heart, science can still lead to Allah subhanahu uh, But it's sort of a vogue amongst university students that science is now leading them to atheism. And then we sort of expose some of the fallacies uh, behind this necessary logical conclusion that if you believe in science, you must deny the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, 
uh, all of this is you can hear the whole lecture with all the slides on YouTube. All right. Third thing we talked about, the fourth thing we talked about was a concept of Quranic humanism. Again, we used this tool where we gathered all the verses, many of the verses in Hadith where Allah SWT talks about Insan, Nas, and Bani Adam to contrast Quranic humanism with secular humanism. So not just Alladina Amanu, Mu'mineen, or Iman, but what does our deen teach us is the concept and role and identity of a human being. Then we did move on to talk about our identity as a believer uh, and do we truly live up to uh, that role of moral model of Iman that Allah SWT has mentioned in Quran. Finally, what we talked about in the morning sessions was Tazkiyah and Ahsan or spiritual purification and development and adorning oneself with noble, virtuous character and practice and how to feel closer to Allah SWT from one's heart. Then in the afternoon sessions, the first thing we talked about obviously was tafsir. The afternoon sessions were a bit more focusing on the knowledge aspect. And we talked about different modes and methods of tafsir. Tafsir al-Quran, bil-Quran. Tafsir of Quran through the Sunnah and Hadith of Nabi Karim sallam, And to what extent the tafsir of Sahaba, Tabin, Tabai, Tabin is authoritative and binding on future generations. And we spoke a little bit, but I may try to expand upon that more tomorrow because that was something I couldn't speak about in depth, on thematic tafsir. All right. Then the next topic we had, uh, rather that was the second. The first topic before that was on aql. And what is the role of intellect when trying to under, intellect and reason when trying to understand Islamic scholarship. And there was a whole presentation on aql contrasted with ulul al-bab, or people of lub contrasted with the notion of ilm. And then the second presentation was on tafsir. The third was on hadith and sunnah. And we looked at a couple of the debates, particularly surrounding weak hadith, al-hadith dhaif and its use. Uh, and also what were the methods of hadith scholars when critically evaluating hadith narrators as well as hadith reports. A fourth thing we looked at last year was on Islamic law. Uh, and how Islamic law is derived or discovered from the Qur'an and Sunnah, uh, and why they're different authoritative legal methodologies known as madhahib. And the very last thing we looked at last year, and this was again a bit brief, because I had done an entire workshop one week prior to the winter study course, was on secularism, modernism, liberalism, uh, and how elements of these three philosophies may or may not be able to be reconciled with Islam. All right? So this is just a recap, basically, of what we did last year. Today, what we're going to be doing in the morning session, inshallah, if you're on that morning session, right, so maybe I will have to call it the slide number. So slide number four, morning session, multiple and diverse approaches to the study of Islam. I thought I would begin by unpacking because if any of you saw an email or a flyer or a poster, there was this very long title, Historical, Intellectual and Spiritual Approaches to the Study of Islam. So I wanted to open this up and actually try to explain so we can understand what I meant by having different approaches to the study of Islam. And in the afternoon session, if you go back to slide three, I'm going to take a particular topic which I call the limits of reason. Uh, and so in the morning session, I will 
highlight many different ways to approach the study of Islam. And then after the session, I will show how far we can go. And then we will learn another very important lesson that you will only be able to go so far. All knowledge is mahdud, is limited. But even when exercising that when make going through that exercise, even getting limited knowledge can sometimes be sufficient to remove our doubts and skepticisms, which is a, con- a common misconception that the only way you will be able to rid yourself of any doubt or skepticism is if you have absolute perfect knowledge. So as a test case for that, in the afternoon we're going to look at a topic which I think just by the title all of you will understand. It. We can only have limited understanding about it. It's called free will and predestination. All right? So that is the program for today. Now we move to, uh, we'll stick on slide number four for a little bit. Now what happens here is that when you have other systems of learning, let's take for example economics or philosophy or even physics for that matter, you will find there are multiple ways that people understand and teach those disciplines. In economics, there are multiple schools of thought. There are Keynesian economists, there's neoclassical economics, there's Marxist economics, in philosophy, there's dozens of different types of philosophers. So the question is that Islam, is there only one single way to understand it? And that's a very common thing that people ask. Right now, I'm not talking about sectarianism. I'm talking about different sects and theology. Because obviously, as you know, there are different theological groups in Islam. I'm putting theology aside for the moment. I'm simply talking about your own knowledge and understanding. And the answer is yes. There are different ways and different methods and different methodologies on the basis of which people are studying Islam and on the basis of which Islam is being taught, both in the academy or the university or the school or college and in the madrasa and in the darlulum. So I wanted to unpack some of that. And then I wanted to make a case for what I argue is this historical, spiritual, intellectual, and that will come a little bit later. So first, let's move to slide number five. The first thing is that any journey of learning will be based on some primary assumptions. There will be have there will necessarily be some things that the learner already believes to be true even before he embarks on his journey, his or her journey of knowledge. So the first contrast in that would be faith when we're talking about the study of Islam, faith a faith based approach and a secular based approach to understanding Islam. Now, obviously, a non-Muslim will necessarily, by default, adopt a secular-based approach. And I'm explaining what these two things are. But interestingly, there are many Muslims now who also have chosen to adopt a secular-based approach to understanding Islam as opposed to a faith-based approach. So what does this mean? It's about your primary assumptions. What are unquestionable truths? There will be some things that a person holds to be true that they won't question. So last year we talked about science. That because we live in an age of science, for most people who are educated, science is an unquestionable truth. Whether they talk about something so trivial as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or whether they talk about that the origin of the universe was with the Big Bang, or many things in between, those are truths that they simply won't question. right? And last year we talked to you about rationality and empiricism, which are the two basic sort of epistemologies beyond scientific thinking. All right? For a believer, the faith-based approach, there are certain unquestionable truths that even though 
while learning Islam, we might question what's the meaning of this hadith. We might question why did a certain scholar of Tafsir write a certain thing. We might question that why did a certain jurist come up with this Islamic law. During that journey still, there will be some primary, basic, unquestionable truths. So number one, first and foremost, is obviously the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, is not just that He exists, but He is as He has described Himself to be in Qur'an al-Karim. So he is necessarily Ar-Rahman. He is Nisa Ar-Rahim. And you will see in the second session, this is important. Because when the atheists ask questions about the problem of evil and the problem of human suffering, the Muslim who is coming with a faith-based approach to Islam knows that Allah SWT is necessarily Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. Necessarily the being of absolute limitless mercy and Ar-Rahim that he dispenses all of that mercy. A secular-based approach doesn't take that assumption, doesn't accept that about. They will question that also. And that's why then, because they don't accept that, they will find the problem of evil and suffering on earth as a problem because they think that if there's evil and suffering on earth, then maybe God is not all-merciful. We can't, we will never come to that conclusion. Yes, we can wonder, you can ask that question, and sometimes you might have to end on that answer that, look, to be honest with you, I can't fully understand in other words, when you come to a particular case, if there's a woman, let's take now a very tragic case, if the woman who's been raped and she tries to come to me and ask me the question, why did Allah Spanta let this happen to me? There's no real answer to that for her. There's a broader theological answer. Allah Spanta tests people. Everybody goes through different tests. But when you're talking about horrific tests, when you're talking about horrors, and as you know in the Muslim world, whether it is Syria, whether it is Burma, whether there's so many other places, there are certain horrors that are being inflicted, right? Now, if you begin with a necessary truth that notwithstanding whatever horrors the politics or sociology might reveal to me or the newspaper might show me, still I know first and foremost always that Allah Ta'ala is all-merciful and His sifat of adl, He is all-just then there will be a certain different way that you can process those human horrors. And if a person doesn't start with that primary assumption and is not saying it's not guaranteed for them that Allah Ta'ala is all merciful and all just, then they will have a different way of processing the same information of evil and suffering in the world. So this is one example of what I'm trying to capture by talking about faith versus secular. So it doesn't mean we're not necessarily using secular in a negative way, but you have to also be honest Secular means that Allah Ta'ala may or may not exist. Secular means, I'm not saying that as my own iman, right? But that's what secular means. Secular means maybe the Quran is true, maybe it's not. Secular means maybe the Prophet was a prophet, maybe he wasn't. Alright? So these are two different approaches when you study Islam. Now obviously you can imagine that that affects every single thing. That affects how you understand Quran. Faith-based, the Qur'an is absolutely, entirely kalamullah, right? Secular, well, parts of it might be, parts of it might be things that the Prophet came up with, parts of it might be the things that people added later, alright? Now, when I suggested to you that Muslims today sometimes take a secular-based approach, they normally don't take it in the big things. So it's a strange thing. It's almost like a paradox what they try to do. They try to stick to the primary truths of faith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists as He has described Himself to be. And He's one, He's merciful, He's just, He's omniscient, He's all-powerful. 
Quran is the absolute word of God, Kalamullah. And Sayyidina Rasulullah is the true and last and final messenger of Allah subhanahu wa They try to take those three things, but still, sometimes they will question what I would suggest would still be primary truths. For example, they will take a verse in Quran. Let's say where Allah subhanahu wa says that the punishment for theft is that the hand of the thief should be cut off. Now no doubt the jurists in history did put that in a particular context, that there must be a certain amount that that person steals, that the person must not be stealing due to absolute hunger or severe hardship. But beyond those exceptional circumstances, the rule applies that if a person is caught stealing, their hand will be cut off. Certain secular Muslims, while maintaining the primary assumptions of faith, existence of Allah Ta'ala, Quran, Risalah, the Prophet they will take this verse of Quran and they will not view it to be a universal teaching. So they will say that, well, in this day and age, to have a punishment like that would be quote-unquote barbaric or be quote-unquote medieval or if they would use softer terms would be outdated. Or if they're more honest, what they actually believe that the modern criminal justice system or the contemporary penal code of whatever the punishment might be for theft, let's say one year in jail, they might not say it, but deep down they actually believe that's a better and more appropriate punishment than cutting the hand. Because that's, you know, a genuine person who seeks the truth is only going to advocate something if they truly think it's better. So actually when you unpack their position, they actually are open to a possibility that human beings might discover a solution that is better than the solution Allah subhanahu wa mentioned in the Quran. Now they'll never say this. If I ask them to sign on the statement, they say, no, 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 that's wrong, I'm a Muslim. How can I sign on that statement? They won't like it if I put it in such explicit, if I frame it in such explicit words. But in reality, that's what they're doing, right? Now, the way they will wiggle their way out of it is, and many of you would have heard this, they love to open like this, they would say, if the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, this is a classic opener, right? If the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, Right? I mean, if we just stop, they, that's just their opening, they want to say something after that. But just question the opening premise. First of all, number one, Sayyidina Rasulullah is not alive today. And in this world, right? Walking planet Earth. Obviously, he is in his resting place in Medina Manawara. Alright? But when Sayyidina Rasulullah was alive on the surface of this Earth, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did reveal a verse in Quran where he said, lakum That I have completed for you your deen, deenukum. It's complete. And ikmal means to bring something to completion and perfection. Right? So for example, it's like me saying today, if Einstein were alive today and I tried to change some law of physics, they said, no, they're here, that's foolish. <laughs> Yeah, you, you can't change. You, that's a foolish way to begin an argument. Right? But that's how they will say. They will say, well, if the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, he would not uh, put the punishment of cutting the hand for theft. He would be perfectly fine. And you know, some of them who take this to extremes, they will even say such, you know, absurd statements. Uh, you know, if the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, he would wear jeans. You know, I, I've, I've literally heard the statement from more than one person, word for word. Right? So, I mean, this is a strange way, uh, a strange approach.
to the study of religion. So the best we can do is try to separate these two things out and I'm calling one, just for the sake of understanding, sometimes you have to tag things. Now, the tags aren't always going to capture the reality. That's why I'm giving you the in-depth explanation, but that is a faith-based approach and a secular-based approach to the study of Islam. All right? So this is one contrast. So now I will open this up for you very briefly if we move to the next slide, number six. All right? Inside number six, you will see, and you can show all of it together at once because I've already mentioned it, uh, the truth of revelation, the truth of prophethood, and we call risala. So the first you can call wahi, the truth of scriptural revelation from Allah subhanahu wa For us specifically, it means Quran al-Karim. The truth of risala, that Allah subhanahu wa did reveal things beyond the Quran to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And this was uh, the first part of our presentation last year on Hadith, which is the proof that other and in addition to the Quran, Allah Subhanahu revealed more material to the Prophet All right. The third thing in the faith-based, there's the third and fourth thing which I didn't mention in the description. The third thing is divine sovereignty and human submission. What does it mean that Allah Taala is Malik and the human is Abd? This changes your approach and understanding to everything in life. So the secular approach doesn't have this notion of human submission and subordination, ubudiya or taslim, which is built into our the very name of our deen, is deen al-Islam. And the last thing, and this is a small typo here, the search for divine pleasure. Uh, pleasure means rada, seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa That the purpose of life and the purpose of all knowledge, and acquiring knowledge, and seeking knowledge, and academic study, is also nothing other than to seek the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Otherwise, then seeking knowledge itself has no value. A secular poster poster says that learning has a value intrinsic to itself. That knowledge has a value in of itself. So the way they say this in fancy English is you can pursue knowledge for your own, merely, solely, only for your own intellectual edification. We said, no, we can never leave it at that. It has to be done for the sake of the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these are very subtle things. But for a Muslim who is trying to learn Islam, this will make a difference. When you don't make these last two niyas, these last two intentions, sometimes a person slips and slides into the secular-based approach. So it's very important if a person really wants to be on the faith-based approach, every time they engage in any activity of learning, they have to consciously, to the foreground, in their mind and in their heart, they have to make these two intentions. Number one, I'm doing this out of ubudiya, as a slave of Allah subhanahu and to become a better slave and to learn how to be a slave. And number two, I'm doing it because I want to be the beloved of Allah subhanahu ta'ala to I want to search and seek and try to attain his divine pleasure. Secular-based approach, now if you move to slide seven, and you can show all of slide seven together at once, is based on rationality. This was explained last year. Science, also explained in depth last year. Materialism. Materialism has two aspects to it. One is empiricism, which means that I can only truly know what is materially apparent and demonstrable in front of me. That part was explained last year. There's another aspect to materialism, that basically the, con- the self-concept of the human being, that I only have a material self. I don't have a ruh, I don't have a qalb, I don't have a lub. I have a brain, but I don't have a lub. This is a term that is ulul al-bab. This is another way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was also explained last year. 
through showing verses from the Quran. Right? So purely material understanding of the human being and a purely exclusively material understanding of the world. Alright? The fourth thing is utility. Utility is sort of, I'm contrasting this with learning for the sake of divine pleasure. Utility means too that knowledge should have some practical benefit as well. Some practical, tangible benefit to the individual or to society. So for example, you will find some people who dismiss learning in humanities and social science or Islamic studies because they say, well, how you earn? You won't be able to practically, there's no practical utility. There's no economic utility to this type of learning because you won't be able to learn anything, right? Uh, another aspect of utility can be social benefit, right? And so you will find sometimes people with the secular-based approach mocking certain aspects of Islamic learning. Say, oh, you know, these ulama, they're just sitting there and they're going deep into the deep esoteric meanings of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what benefit is that uh, to tackle the problems that we as a society are facing. So no doubt, that might even be correct, right? But correcting the problems in society is also something that Islam wants. It's also something that will bring the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but it's not the only thing that will bring the pleasure to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Learning how to pray your salah better. Learning how to make sajda in a way that you feel closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. While it will not do anything about poverty and illiteracy, it will not do anything about war and conflict and suffering, it will also be an act pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So simply speaking, the faith-based approach understands that there's a wider set of knowledge in order to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of it necessarily will and should have utility, social, public utility, and even individual utility, but some of it might not, because it's entirely to do with the akhirah. And the secular-based approach is only looking at dunya, is only looking at this world, right? And we have a broader concept of utility, that okay, this may not benefit anyone on earth, but it benefit me in my akhirah, right? As an ukhrawi nafa, has a benefit in the akhirah. The last word I put on this slide, if you look here at slide 7, atheism. All secular people aren't atheists, as you just, I've already mentioned to you that there are many Muslims who adopt a secular approach. But, for those who don't have faith, then ultimately the secular-based approach to knowledge will have elements of atheism in it. Alright? Will have elements of atheism in it. Atheism is simply uh, the denial of all of the truths that we mentioned in slide number six. All right? Atheism is the denial of Allah subhanahu wa denial of revelation, the denial of prophethood. All right? And obviously then, when you deny those three things, you deny many details, but these are the broad denials of atheism. All right. Now when we're talking about knowledge of deen, if you move to slide number eight, and again you can show all of it entirely, this is something that we had uh, done for you last year as well, uh, and that was the famous hadith, Hadith Jibreel, which is in the Sahih of Bukhari and the Sahih of Ma Muslim as well. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala send His mercy on them both. All right? And this is a very long hadith. Uh, basically, one major aspect of that hadith is these four questions that the angel Jibreel asked Sayyidina Rasulullah, what is Iman, what is Islam, what is Ihsan? And then, what are the signs of the hour? And the Prophet says that the one who is asking knows more than the one being asked. And then 
says, okay, then the angel says, okay, then tell me about its signs. Tell me about the hour. Says the one who's asking knows more than the one being asked. Then tell me about its signs. So Nabi Karim Nasa mentioned two signs. One is that the naked and destitute poor shepherds will compete with one another to construct tall buildings. If you read the news, you'll be amazed that Qatar, Dubai and Saudi Arabia are constantly in this race that who's going to build the tallest tower in the world or tallest building in the world or tallest skyscraper in the world. All right? Uh, and then the second sign that Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned is that the slave girl would give birth to her mistress. And this is something that we talked about uh, last year. All right? These two signs and what they mean. So the signs is what I'm calling used to, using today's terms of social sciences, social reality. These two things that the Prophet was pointing to social reality. And the reason why this slide is titled what is deen because when the angel Jibreel left, the Prophet turned to the Sahaba and asked them, do you know who that was? And he had come in human disguise. So they said, no, we don't know Allah Ta'ala and his messenger. Sallallahu know best. And the Prophet Sallallahu then he told the Sahaba, that was the angel Jibreel who came to teach you your deen. Who came to teach you your deen. So then we understand that deen, broadly speaking, consists of understanding these four things. Understanding what is iman, which is different articles of faith and theology and beliefs. Understanding what is Islam, how to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the knowledge of halal and haram. There are certain things that I have to do that's an act of submission. There are certain things I have to refrain from that's also part of my submission. right? Third is what is ashan. To worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if you feel that you're seeing Him. Or if not, that you feel that He is looking at you. And then this notion of social reality. Right? So then, if a person is acquiring ilm or knowledge, they're acquiring learning in order to advance, understand and then advance your practice in deen, then they have to acquire knowledge of these four things. So it's important to show this because social reality is a part of the faith-based approach. This is also a common mistake many Muslims make. They exceed defeat and they allow this understanding that okay, social sciences and social reality belongs only in secular studies. And Islamic studies is just about the first three things. No, Islamic studies also must include the fourth thing, right? Uh, and in, for, just as to give you the most basic example, one of the five pillars, as you know, is zakat. Zakat has been paid for the past few hundred years, but poverty is still there. But our deen teaches us that zakat has the power to eradicate poverty. So what's the problem? It's because we lack our understanding of social reality. And we lack the ability to apply that zakat with the proper understanding of social reality. It has to be our iman, our yaqeen, our tawakkal on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that zakat has the power to eradicate poverty, eliminate poverty. But it's only going to do that when we have number four. It's not going to be just through the money. Alright? So that's to give you one example of how social reality is a necessary part of deen. Those of you who were in the talk we gave exactly one week ago, one lane away, at Shabir Bai's house, we talked about zulm and how to, how our deen tells us that we should not ourselves be oppressors, that we should try to help the oppressor, oppressed, liberate themselves from oppression, help the Muslim be free from his Muslimiyah, and we have to either help or repel the zalim from his zalimiyah. 
the oppressor from his oppression. Right? You can't do those things unless you know social reality. You won't be able to do that unless you know social reality. Alright? So these are all things that are aspect of our deen. Alright, if we move to the next slide, slide number nine, the first line in that is called academic and polemic. Alright? So before I continue, I will just pause a little bit here. What why am I even talking to you about this topic, right? It's not just for the sake of fancy English lecture. The reason is, is that I find that there are a lot of Muslims in the Muslim world who at some point in their life make a decision that they have acquired university learning, worldly learning, professional learning, secular learning, whatever you want to call it. And then they realize that there's this gap in their knowledge about Islam. And they feel that the knowledge of their profession has reached a certain level of excellence, some level of excellence, but their knowledge of Islam is completely still at some level of mediocrity, put it that way. And this is a gap. And what they want to do and what they should want to do is they should want to bridge that gap. Now the way to bridge that gap is then, okay, to try to find some way and some place and some system of scholarship and learning to acquire Islamic knowledge, Right? I find that a lot of people, despite their well intentions, they make a lot of mistakes when it comes to that. And then sometimes we meet people who spent one year, two years, five years, ten years of their life trying to acquire Islamic knowledge and a genuine intention, sincere intention to address this gap that they found, but they weren't successful at doing so. Right? Uh, so this was a topic I mentioned last year as well. Uh, for those of you who came a bit late, what I'm actually doing is completing a course I taught last year. Five days of that course were taught last year, and these two days are what we call in Abitatatimma, the completion of that course. All right? The five days that we taught last year have been up and available for you to listen with the slides and view on YouTube. All right? And if you want any information, you can contact our two fellows in front, Sajjad and Farooq. All right? And they will give you uh, the information of where to find those previous lectures on YouTube. Okay. So one thing I did for you last year was I talked about, which I'm not going to repeat that then now, is the need for authoritative and qualified scholarship. And I showed through actually the Quran itself and the Hadith of the Prophet and the lives and practice of Sahaba and how the Sahaba transmitted knowledge to the Tabin through four ways. Right? How the Sahaba learned from each other, number three, and how the Sahaba transmitted knowledge to Tabin, that whenever you look at this knowledge and transmission of knowledge, it was always done on a basis of qualified scholarship. It was never self-read, self-taught. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah did not just give his notebook of hadith to the Tabin, no. There was formal learning, formal instruction, talim and ta'allum. And these are words that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses in Quran. All right? Uh, now, uh, having said all of that uh, previously, I wanted to highlight some more aspects of these multiple and diverse approaches. So the first line here, if you see, is called academic and polemic. All right. Academic means that you begin your journey with an open mind and you then necessarily would have to consult, let's say, multiple tafsir, not just one single scholar of tafsir, multiple commentaries of Hadith, not just one single commentary of Hadith, multiple biographies, Sira 
of Sayyidina Rasulullah No doubt you will begin with one, but you won't end with one. You, everybody will begin with one, but you won't end with one. A second aspect of academics, now which are contrast to polemics, is that the polemical approach to Islam is basically about pushing one particular ideology and then using all of Islamic scholarship and learning only at the service of that ideology. Right? Only at the service of that ideology. For example, and I'm a very frank person, I will speak very freely, frankly. All right? There are some people who decide to believe in the notion of reviving Khilafah. Now what they will do is they will engage the Quran and Sunnah and Islamic tradition not with the need to learn, but to find anything that will support their ideology. So then all of Islamic learning and scholarship is only to be used to the service of their ideology. There are some people who believe in politics and siyasa, right? That okay, Muslims should be politically active and form political parties and they should try to work using the democratic party system to take control of the government, all right? What they will do, they will also show up, remember the workshop, they will show up at the workshop and they will try to use, employ all of Islamic scholarship and learning to service their ideology. That's called the polemical approach. Right? Somebody believes uh, that um, maybe even, okay, that was two examples from, but even a particular legal position. Somebody believes that you should raise your hands when you come up from Raku. Another person believes you should not raise your hands when you come up from Raku. Alright, they come to that position first, they will learn later. This is the polemical approach. Decide your position first, do the learning later. So each of them already has their position. They will engage the entire Hadith literature and they will only use the Hadith literature in service of their position. So you'll be, as this is a perfect example, because in Sahih of Muslim, you will find Sahih Hadith that mentioned that the Prophet did not raise his hands when coming from Ruku, and you will find Sahih Hadith mentioning that the Prophet did raise his hands after Ruku. Now anybody who's teaching that in an academic way would show you both. The person teaching you a polemical way, if his position is you should not raise your hands, he will show you the deed that says don't raise your hands. And if his approach is that his position is that you should raise your hands, he will show you the deed that says you should raise your hands. Right? That's called the polemical approach. You will find lots of, especially on the issue of prayer, which is so sad because Salah was supposed to be spiritual. In any case, Salah was the real question was, okay, spend one minute on deciding whether you will raise your hands or not and spend your lifetime trying to really feel Sami Allahu liman hamida Rabbana lakal hamd. Feel it. Can your heart feel Allah Ta'ala is hearing my hamd and then I say with my heart, Rabbana lakal hamd. Oh, to my Rabb, all hamd belongs to you. You're listening to me doing hamd of you? I say all hamd belongs to you. Spend your life trying to get the feeling. But when you get caught up in the polemics, Often, that's another sign, by the way, is they won't talk to you about the feeling. They won't talk to you about the feeling. You also find the latest, if I give it the latest cutting-edge development, there have been a few people who come to some of my presentations from the polemical side, and they would hear these things. So then they would go back and they would retool. So, for example, literally, there would be people from the polemical side who come just to scope and they want to hear. And I know that, and I, I, open, I keep my doors always open to them, and I know they're here today also, right? Uh, they might be from Hizb tahrir they might be from Tanzim Islami, they might be from Jamaat Islami, they might be from the Salafi group, right? And what they do is they rework their presentation with the feelings, right? And so they never talked about this before, but they just tack it on, 
uh, and when they give these huge, you know, intense sessions about who prays wrong and who prays right and who's with the sunnah, who's against the sunnah, they had a couple of feelings in. No, right? So that's not genuine. The question is, why weren't you doing that for years? Why didn't your elders do that? Why isn't it written in all your polemical books? All right? This is a problem. So this is the, what we call the polemical approach. Okay? So obviously, as you can tell, I'm an advocate. And even if a Hanafi does this, if a Hanafi tries to only teach those hadith that support the Hanafi legal positions and tries to suppress those hadith that don't support the Hanafi legal positions, that Hanafi will also be guilty of polemics. All right? Now let me show you another thing, which if you, if you had saw the title of the course, there were three things, intellectual, historical, and spiritual. Of intellectual, I've given you quite a bit of information now, Right? Okay, everything I've been saying now would fall under the broad label of quote-unquote intellectual. Now give me an example of historical, which is why it's so important. Sometimes when you lack historical understanding of how Islamic learning and scholarship, or even about a particular scholar, you might misclassify them. You might misclassify them, so I'll give you two examples of that. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani was a great scholar of Hadith. And his particular field of hadith, although no doubt he was a scholar of narrator evaluation, but one of his greatest fields of hadith was actually analyzing and commentary on the meaning of hadiths. And his, pretty much almost every scholar alive and for the past several centuries had the position that his commentary known as Fatul Bari is the greatest ex- single explanation of all the hadith in Sahih Bukhari. It's still the it doesn't matter who you 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 know everybody views him as the great person who understood and explained best the meanings of the hadith in the Sahih Bukhari. All right. Now Ibn Hajar Skalani, interestingly, in addition to being a hadith scholar, was also a jurist, and he strictly adhered in all of his legal positions to the Shafi Madhab. So to strictly adhere to one single legal methodology that is called taklid in Arabic. Now because he believed in this strict adherence to the Shafi Madhab, at one point he decided to compile a textbook of hadith evidences for the positions of his mother. His niyat intention in that was not to suppress the other hadith. He was just giving a manual, right? Uh, because he already has commented on the Sahih of Bukhari and he has many other hadith works, Right? So the name of that is called Al-Bulugh Al-Maram. And he made this particular textbook of Hadith only for this reason, with only the intention to only just simply compile, gather the Hadith evidences for the legal positions of the Shafi Madhab. Right? Today people who don't have that historical understanding, sometimes they mislabel him and say, look, he was a polemicist and this was a work of polemics. It wasn't. He was a true academic scholar of Hadith and of Islamic law. But he felt it was useful that those people who follow Shafi Fiqh, they, somebody should compile a little hadith manual for them. So they, they should see, they should get a behind the scenes look at the hadith evidences for the legal positions that they follow. And that's a very worthwhile thing, right? So sometimes people misunderstand him. Sometimes people misuse him. Misuse him how they say, oh, we're going to teach you a hadith book by the person that even the Hanafis will call the greatest scholar of Bukhari. And you see what those hadith will tell you. And obviously those hadith will only mention the evidences for the Shafi legal position. 
So when you don't take the historical approach, sometimes you might misunderstand someone, sometimes you might misuse them, right? That is also a classical feature of the polemical approach, that they're ahistorical. They don't look at history. I'll give you another person, Ibn Taymiyyah If you ask me, Ibn Taymiyyah is completely within and from Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Yes, every great scholar, and he had an incredible intelligence, will have some departures from the scholastic tradition. They will have some positions that might depart from others. No problem. Now the question is, how do you choose to read him in history? If you focus on his departures only, and you zoom in on his departures, then you will write history in such a way that he's a complete renegade, complete maverick, some totally separate school of thought. And if you focus on the reality, which is there if you look at his multi-volume fatawa, that overall, the vast majority of positions, he was aligned with pre-existing scholars, and it's just a few issues in which he made a departure, you will comfortably read him as part and parcel of a broader tradition. Right? That second way is what we call the academic approach, and the first way to just pluck him out and make him something separate, that is a polemic approach. Right? Okay, if you look at the next line, analytical and critical. Now, I, I'm again, these are just tags. These words can often be synonymous, analytical and critical. But I'm using it to show you a reality, right? It goes back to the faith and secular thing. Because many times secular people will suggest that you cannot do critical thinking about your religion because you're a person of faith, right? And this is a very big thing. Uh, that happens, you know, I taught Islamic studies at Lums for six years, right? And I basically taught them what I call the academic approach. Then there was a person who came later and he insisted that, no, you have to have an academic approach, but you must also adopt a secular approach. And you must not have a faith-based approach to Islamic studies. Another word they use for this in, in, in the West is called confessional. Confessional means that you confess meaning they call iman confession, that you confess to believe in Islam. So they say, we're going to teach you Islam in a non-confessional way, right? Uh, so if that's what you mean by critical, yes. We accept, we accept that, that we're not going to question the idea, which I again told you in the beginning, the primary truths about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His attributes, Qur'an al-Kareem, and Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu If that's what you mean by critical, then yes, we won't be able to do that. All right, But it doesn't mean you can't be analytical. Again, many faith-based Muslims and university students, again, they concede defeat. And they think that, oh, this person is right, and they're going to be all critical, and me, I'm a blind follower. No, no, you're not a blind follower. Analytical means you research, you analyze, you probe, you question, you discover, you assess, you reassess. You might even change your opinion and your position multiple times. You might even get confused. You might even say, I don't know. All of that is part of the analytical process. That's another very important thing. Ending the journey with I don't know is acceptable. And the great philosophers and great thinkers many times would do that. And this, this is a delusion to think that critical thinking means you would definitely know. Right? And again, uh, the, polemic, the polemical approach also misuses these two things. So they will suggest, for example, that Ibn Hajar Askalani, because he chose to uh, adhere to the Shafi legal positions, he was uncritical. Right? And the true way would be to be critical thinking like us and only follow the Hadith. No, that's wrong. Uh, Ibn Hajar Askalani, 
along with and due to his deep knowledge of Hadith and his analytical study of Hadith, he found it to be completely fine to adhere to a single legal methodology. And it wasn't entire, in any way uncritical or blind following on his part. So now you can see sometimes these labels are used by people against each other, basically. And that's something you want to avoid. So obviously on this again, on the first line we are, want to be on the academic side and on the polemic side. On the second side we want to be analytical because analytical includes everything that is good about being critical without the negative aspect of it that overly being critical of the primary truths or overly being critical of others. This is another thing, right? So the person who has an analytical approach to Shafi Fiqh doesn't have, feel the need to be critical of Hanafis, right? Because he's fine. He says that they also have an they also have an analysis. I can respect multiple analyses. The person who's critical then often becomes what the word says critical. They end up critiquing others, and then they critique others not just others, but any and everyone who holds a position different than theirs, and then this impacts that feeling of unity in the ummah. That impacts the spirit of unity in the ummah. And perhaps, unfortunately, the greatest uh, culprits of this is the contemporary Salafi movement. Because if you see historically, if you look at Islamic history, there were different understandings of Islamic law. And the great Jurists used to engage in analytical discussions, even debates with each other. But in, when they moved to social reality and the common people, they wouldn't critique one another publicly. There was never any Maliki scholar who traveled from Morocco to India and told them that Hanafi fiqh is wrong and you're praying the wrong way, you should pray my way. There was never any Hanbali scholar traditionally who traveled from Arabia and went to Malaysia and Indonesia and said you're following Shafi fiqh, it's wrong, you should be Hanbali. They never did that on the public level. No doubt on their own high-level intellectual circles and academic circles, they would have lots of interesting analytical discussions and even debates with each other. But at the public ummah level, they had complete respect and they would never speak out against anybody else. Right? As opposed to today where you have people you know, literally funded by... Uh, oil dollars to the extent of you know millions and millions of dollars to travel the world and to tell people that what they're doing is wrong. Uh, and that creates uh, schism and separation and tafarruqa in the ummah. All right? So be analytical, but try not to be critical of others. That's another aspect and another thing to learn over here. Right? I'll give you a personal example from myself. Right? I personally don't believe uh, that Muslims should... Uh, form political parties and try to take over the government through the political party process. Okay, But I don't critique Jamaat Islami. If they want to do it, I'm fine with it. As long as they do it in a way that you know is within the Sharia, as long as they have ikhlas and as long as they're people of deen, uh, I don't stop it. I've never tried to go and stop Jamaat. I don't think, and the people who don't be, I don't think there's any activity anybody could say I've ever done in my life which has actually been to try to stop them from what they do, right? Uh, they have their view. Their analysis has led them to that position. As long as they have ikhlas, right? As long as they're sincere and they're true, who knows? Maybe they'll succeed where I'll fail, right? Or maybe they'll succeed where others will fail, all right? The, the critical approach would be, no, we have to wipe them out. They should not exist Everybody who's with them should leave them. It's completely false. And unfortunately, you'll find some people, they talk like that. 
they can't handle the existence of somebody whose analysis led them to a different position than their own. They want to obliterate that other thing. Right? And so they're going about, can't be that you pray like this, you must stop praying. Why? You have to be able to handle this. Uh, that historically there have always been multiple positions in the Ummah. Alright, move to side number 10. Side number 10, if you look at the first line, textual and contextual. Alright? So now I'm talking about texts of classical Islamic learning. Every text and every trend in Islamic scholarship had a context. So I'll give you some examples of that. Right? Uh, it was an unfortunate thing. After the time of the Taba'i Tabin, there was a lot of weird theological, philosophical sects, sects that arose in Islam. So one of them is known as the Mu'tazila. All right? The Mu'tazila in Arabic, the Mu'tazilis in English. All right? It's, it's a very, you know, and it's a very interesting thing to learn about them and actually you learn a lot when learning about them. And that's something you have to be open to learning about these people. All right? Now, uh, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm really going to very simplify this. Let's just say they came to some understandings that the Mufassirun, Muhaddisun, Fuqaha, the Islamic scholars of the time felt were not acceptable and were incorrect. All right? Now, there were different ideas on how we should counter this. One group felt that we should try to counter them on their own terms. And so they devised a particular branch of learning, which you can say wasn't really around at the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah in the time of Sahaba. And that is called Ilmul Kalam. And Ilmul Kalam in English means dialectical theology. It's debate in dialectics on these theological issues of the attributes of Allah Ta'ala and on many things. Ilmul Kalam. All right? So there was a person, for example, by the name Abul Hassan al-Ashari. And he actually developed this Ashari Kalam, this way of engaging the Mu'tazilis in a way that was so successful that then all the Mu'tazilis basically retracted their position or just faded within one century. Now when that's done, me and you, we can pick up Ashari Kalam and put it back on the shelf. We don't need it now. Because that had a particular context. That had a particular context that wasn't there in the earlier time and it wasn't needed in a later time. It was only done in order to correct the misunderstandings that uh, the Mu'tazilas had arrived at and were trying to lead others to. So a mistake would be somebody who just does text and doesn't this context, they will dig up some Ashri Aqidah text and they will pull it out and they will try to teach some of these very fine points. And, and this doesn't happen in Pakistan, Alhamdulillah. In the UK, it's a very interesting thing. In the UK, there are people who dig up these centuries old, very complicated philosophical, theological Kalam texts and they revive those debates. They revive those debates and, and they're not actually even qualified to do this and they make many mistakes and it's a very dangerous area because Ilmu Kalam is talking about Aqidah and Imam and really for us it's enough you know I mean most of the people who attend their courses don't yet even know what I mentioned at the very start don't even know the verses on Imam in the Quran they don't even know the Hadith that the Prophet mentioned about Imam and they're being taught this hardcore philosophical theological text that's wrong you have to understand that certain things had a particular context I'll give you another example, Imam al-Ghazali, 
Imam Ghazairim Latala, I think all of you know him, right? Uh, he was living uh, 10 centuries ago. Now, he developed an articulation of tasawwuf, all right? There was one aspect of his articulation of tasawwuf, which I think can be left on the shelf, because that was due to a particular context. And what was that? That he had engaged some philosophers, and he's known for this, writing this work, the Hafidul Philosopher. He was trying to, again, address the misunderstandings that philosophers had come to. And he realized that some of them are very good people. And some of them are very impressed with the Greek philosophy about virtue and character and ethics. So in some of his works, in some places, he tried to take classical pure Islamic tazkiyah or tasawwuf and explain it in Greek philosophical terms in order to attract those philosophers and say, look, if this is something you're interested in, you can get this from deen. You can get this from Deen. So he tried to create a monasaba. He tried to create some affinity and compatibility with, for the philosophers in the more proper Islamic understanding of spirituality. Right? Now, when he chose to do that, if you were to read it today, you would say, oh, you know, this is kind of weird and why is he using these Greek terms and why is he being so philosophical about it? These things are just explained more easily, more simply, more directly from the Quran and Sunnah. So he was doing it for a reason. There was a particular context for that. And I, if you ask me, I think he did the right thing. You know, for example, today, if I meet a Muslim who has become an atheist, may Allah protect everybody's iman, and he starts talking to me using the terms of, you know, enlightenment philosophy, I will hit him back with the same terms. I'm not going to throw verses of Quran and, and Hadith on him. It's not going to work on him. He's operating from another frame of reference. I have to go into his world and take him out. And when I take him out, then I can bring him into the proper world of proper Islamic learning. Right? Khair, that's one way. Right? And if there's somebody who is more inspirational than me, would maybe have so much power and tasir that they just quote one verse of Quran or they just recite Quran and they melt that person's heart. Right? There are different methods that have to be used. So Imam Ghazali did that with a particular context. So again, if you ask me, we can leave those parts of his text aside because he himself also didn't mean it for me and you. He didn't mean, he didn't want that people like me and you would understand the Sof and Tazkiyah in that way. He only wanted the people who were philosophers and were in love with Greek virtue ethics to understand the Sof in that way. Right? So this is an example of text and context. Alright? If you look at the next line, then we have those three words, historical, intellectual, and spiritual. Now I've given you examples of historical as well now. Right? And intellectually you've understood. Now the third thing left is spiritual. Alright? Spiritual means is that ultimate, let's begin with the first thing I mentioned, that everything has to be done ultimately for the sake of pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And sometimes for different people, different ways and methods of learning might bring you to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's pleasure in a different way, right? For example, and you should also even look at this yourself. There are some people who initially, I'm talking about the initial stages, ultimately everybody should want to learn everything. But initially what you have to do is whatever aspect of Islamic learning attracts you, inspires you, motivates you, you should run with that. For some people, that might, let's say, might start with Sirah. It's not necessary that everybody has to start with Quran. You have to end up learning all these things. For some people, it might be Sirah. For sometimes children, it's stories of the prophets, stories of Sahaba, 
right? We might teach them stories of the prophets and stories of Sahaba even before we teach them Quran. Now that doesn't mean somebody tries to again engage this polemical critique on us. Oh, ye to Quran hi nahi They don't even teach Quran. No, no, we're coming there. But our understanding of these children is when we try to teach them our experience, when we try to teach them Quran, they sort of, you know, start falling asleep in class. Or they weren't able to connect to it. So we're trying to inspire them first with some stories. We're telling them stories about the Prophet some himself, stories about the other Prophet, stories about Sahaba. No doubt, ultimately, because I'm going to show you, it's coming later in the slides, I'm going to show you a whole package of Islamic studies, which I didn't do for you last time, of what I think, where you should begin, and how you should continue. Right? So this is spiritual. For an adult learner, for an adult learner, it might be the case for some people, mashallah, that even just listening to Quran, they say, I love such and such a qari, and I love to listen to their recitation, and just listening to the recitation melts my heart. I'll say, okay, fine, run with that. I'm not going to tease them and say, oh, look, you're just listening to the qari, you haven't learned Arabic yet, you don't know Arabic, you can't understand, leave, you're listening, and come to me, I'm going to teach you Arabic. You have to be very careful in displacing people. If there's something that's working for them, Yes, you can add to it. You can gently show them, okay, you know, imagine how much his recitation would impact you if you understood what he's saying. But don't very quickly pluck them away from something that's working for them spiritually. And track this about yourself also. And that's why people should have multiple things that they're doing because there might be some day. It shouldn't be like this. But, in, but Allah Ta'ala said in the Quran, the Quran is thaqeel. The Quran is heavy. And for some people, they're not always ready. They're not always able to pick up the Quran and just open up the seer and start reading it. So have something light. Have a seer book on your table. Have something, some spiritual motivational book on your table. Have a, some bayans in your, some Islamic lect, motivational lectures on your recorder. You should always keep in mind that it should never be dry. Khushkut should never be empty of spirituality. You have to find what will connect your heart closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the second aspect of this meaning of spiritual is it has to be linked to practice. Historical knowledge isn't going to change your amal. Intellectual knowledge is not going to change your amal. But when you're doing it for the sake of the spiritual quality of taqwa, when you're doing it for the spiritual quality of ikhlas, you will realize you have to do amal also. It's not just about ilm. It's not just about ilm, there has to be amal, there has to be amal, there has to be amal. And that's another difference between the faith-based and secular-based approach. And we do believe in that. A person who does amal, who prays, who is pious, who has taqwa, Allah Ta'ala is al-hadi. He will give them hidayah to understandings of Qur'an that a secularist will never be able to get. How did he get that? Not through his learning, through his amal, through his amal. That's also a spiritual understanding to, about Islam. Amal leads to ilm. Normally we talk about it the other way, right? That you need ilm, so then you do amal on it. You need to acquire knowledge, so you practice it, right? No doubt, but you have to, it works the other way also, in a very major way. And that's actually, if you were to look at one of the greatest common features of all the great ulama of our ummah, they were all sahib amal. And this is a beautiful phrase in our deen, sahib Sahib Amal means the person who did so much Amal. He's called a Sahib, a companion to Amal. Means him and Amal were always together. A person of practice. And so it's very important when we study. If you, for example, join a Quran studies course and you find that after two, three months your tajweed is better, your understanding of tafsir is better, 
So, but is your recitation better? Is your feeling, you have to track your amal also. Are you reciting more? Are you feeling more? Or is it only your ilm is going up? That's dangerous. If only your ilm is going up and your amal isn't going up also, then you're not properly learning in the Islamic sense. So to be a learner and a student and a seeker of knowledge in Islam means that as you increase your ilm, you must increase your amal. And that's the only way that would be called a spiritual connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And any and every time without exception that the ilm goes up and the amal stays the same, dangerous. Dangerous. And the end result, not in the beginning, but ultimately the end of that is called nifaq. That's a munafik who has knowledge but doesn't practice it. Right? And the third aspect, okay, third aspect of the word spiritual is experience. So okay, I know it. I practice it, but I'm not experiencing it. So you should have a figure for that. You should have a figure that, okay, I know I should pray. Okay, I practice praying. Okay, and I don't have that nifaq, that I don't do amal on my own. I'm doing amal. But I don't experience it. So that, sometimes in Arabic, that's called hal. But I don't want to say the word hal, because then you might think of people dancing around somebody's grave uh, while being drunk. That's not called hal. Hal means that you experience the qurb in sajda that you learned that Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that makes sajda and you will feel qurb. You have to experience it. Right? And that's the real purpose of knowledge. Even beyond practice, the ultimate purpose of knowledge is experience. That okay, like I did for you, the translation. Let's say somebody says, I don't know about the translation. Okay, I did the You got the knowledge. Okay, you can practice it. You say it. But you will only get lutf. Lutf, you will enjoy it when you experience that from your heart, the feeling of hamd, the feeling of praise to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that moment in salah. So you have to go all the way. So that's just what I'm using this one word, spiritual. right? So again, don't worry about the tags and labels. They're just things for our own understanding to understand. So if I say the word spiritual now, you'll understand what I mean. right? It means it has to be done for the pleasure of Allah ta'ala, has to be for practice, and has to be for experience. All right, so all, that's all I mean by the word spiritual. Nothing more at this moment. Okay. Now the last line over here on slide number ten is combining and reconciling multiple approaches. All right, because that's what I'm going to suggest. You have to do all of this. You have to be historical, intellectual, spiritual. You have to be textual and contextual. You have to be academic, you have to be analytical, you have to understand Iman, understand Islam, understand Islam, understand uh, social reality, and you cannot deny the basis of secular, you cannot deny science, you can not, not outright deny rationality, you have to find a way to incorporate that also, to have an understanding of deen which does not mean that you have to renounce science or renounce rationality, alright? Uh, and obviously, the very first thing we mentioned, you must always be true to the primary truths of Islam. So you have to combine and reconcile all of these things. Combine to yeah, reconcile. Reconcile means, let's take a verse from Quran. Sometimes there's a verse in Quran that if you look at its text, it will have one meaning. If you look at its context, it will have a slightly different meaning. Now when it comes to Quran, context means two things. First context means that what's what called siyak wa sibak, what's going on in that part of Quran before and after that ayah. That's the first meaning of context. Second meaning of context is when was this ayah revealed? 
So in other words, what was going on in Sirah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ as it unfolds is itself the context of Qur'an. And then the revelation of Qur'an as Allah Ta'ala has what we call not the tirtib and azuli, but the way Allah Ta'ala told the Prophet to arrange the verses of Qur'an. That is also a context of Qur'an. So two contexts of Qur'an. Now, last year, if I remember correctly, we explained this concept to you, which is called umum fil ma'na. That there might be a verse that has a particular context, but it also has a more general lesson. And you need both of them. You need both of them. Alright? Um, let me see what can be a good example. I can do this for you. So I can give you, in, in fact, to, to connect it to last year, an example I give you from Quran for some other uh, in the course of some other lecture last year. So Allah SWT says in Quran Al-Karim, فَسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Okay, ask the Ahl al-Dhikr. I'm going to leave it untranslated for a reason. Ask the Ahl al-Dhikr إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ If you do not know. Right? Now the original context of revelation in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, if you take that, then Ahl al-Dhikr means the Ahl al-Kitab. Ahl al-Kitab. Right? Because the Ahl Kitab at that time actually had some level of true scriptures preserved. Some of it had already been fabricated, forged, adulterated, right, altered, but they had some elements of truth. And Allah Spanta knew, obviously because Allah knows everything, that they had enough truth to recognize the truth of the Prophet. And there are many verses of in the Quran and even many hadith also that talk about this. For example, the Sfantah that they recognize you, Marfat, that they recognize you the same way they recognize their own sons. What does it mean? They recognize you to be the true Prophet of Allah, just like they recognize that child to truly be their own son. Right? Okay? So, some, this is the original context. You know, ask them if you don't know. Because they know, they do know. They know, right? Now today, if I, trans, if, if I say by Ahlul Dhikr you should take Ahlul Kitab, so today, no, no, today that's not the case. Now look at today's context. Today the Ahlul Kitab don't know. They truly don't know. Judaism, Christianity has evolved further to such a way that there's no element in it that on its own they can recognize the truth of Nabi Akram Sallallahu They will need some da'wah effort. They will need some explanation of Islam, some understanding of Islam. On their own they don't know. Right? So the question then would then be that if we do umum, when we're trying to find the general meaning of this verse, because that's one aspect of Quran that every verse in some way must have a lesson for every Muslim for all times. And in some way, in some sense, must be able to be practiced or experienced or understood for every Muslim at all times. So how do we understand this verse? Right? So then, when the Mufassirun, the ulama of Tafsir, then take out the general. So then now, understand its text, understand the text in its context, but sometimes take it out of its context also. So this I'm saying, reconciling multiple approaches. Then you'll get a different understanding. Then it simply means Allah subhanahu is saying what to us in Quran. Ask the people who remember if you don't know. Right? 
Rather, let me translate it more precisely. Ask the people of remembrance if you don't know. Right? What does it mean? The ahl dhikr then, in this meaning, in the general meaning, means that the people who have ilm, they obviously they know, and they practice and they experience. That's called dhikr in our deen. Right? So you would understand the meaning of dhikr from the other verses of Quran on dhikr. Right? What, how, el, how, el, in what other ways and senses has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the word dhikr in Quran? Now this is a very fine point in tafsir. You can't always plug all of them in elsewhere. You know, in other words, all the other senses in which Allah Ta'ala has used the word dhikr in Quran, I can't plug all of them in here in replacement of Ahl dhikr. Right? This is, this is a fun. This is exactly what the qualified scholar knows and what the unqualified like me and you we don't know. Right? Second, there's a logimana also. One is the simple Arabic lexical dictionary meaning of the word dhikr. That's just remembrance. When can you take out the textual, contextual meaning and insert the logoi meaning? This is also a field of scholarship, right? So part of this reconciling multiple approaches is a bit more of a scholarly, scholastic activity. But anyway, I wanted to show it for you, right? So if we were to go through this whole exercise on this ayah, right? And then again, you would find multiple positions. There would be some ulama of tafsir who would allow you to use, let's say, five meanings of the word zikr. For Ahl al-Dhikr. Some would allow you only to use three. Some would allow you to use seven. Some would exhibit no preference and say all five can equally be used. Some would do tarjih and exhibit a preference for one over the other. Some might suggest all time. Ta- I mean, it says the whole world when you enter tafsir. Alright? And in fact, really, if a person goes through tafsir or hadith commentary, you will see exactly this. It's exactly when you combine and reconcile multiple approaches that your tafsir ends up being 10, 15, 20 volumes, mashallah, as the great ulama of tafsir did. It's exactly when you do this that your commentary and hadith ends up in 20, 25, 30 volumes as the great muhaddithin did. Alright? And if a person was just doing single, narrow-minded, polemical, ideological approach, you just need one or two volumes to do that. You don't need so many volumes to do that. Alright? This last part then a person will understand uh, maybe at the more intermediate or advanced stage of Islamic learning. Alright, so we move then to slide 11. Where to begin? Where to begin? So I'd mentioned that I felt that people who want to increase their Islamic knowledge and learning, they don't always follow a systematic way. You will see in anything in life, if you follow a systematic plan of action, and you put in effort systematically with hard work and discipline, you will acquire more and you will acquire it sooner and faster, and you will acquire it easier, and you will acquire it in a deeper way. And if you just randomly do, because unfortunately a lot of people, they just randomly surf different websites, they randomly read different books they find, and this random, unplanned, non-systematic way, they certainly learn some things, but then they still have other gaps. And then like I told you, they're missing what I want you people to try to get is that overall vision and understanding of Islam. Because that what puts a person into practice and experience. And individual tidbits of information, more often than not, aren't able to guide us to practice and experience. Alright? So, slide number 11 was where to begin. So, slide number 12. So, slide number 12 first. Uh, and again, uh, these aren't in order. I'm giving you all of the things to begin with. I'm giving you multiple beginnings. Right? So, in fact, why don't you show all of it? Uh, show all of slide number 12 so that part gets clear. So this first uh, slide 12 is where to begin number one. 
all three of them is the first place to begin. The Quran, the Seerah, and the Sunnah Hadith of Nabiya Kareem Wasallam. And this is where you will begin and you will never leave this beginning. You will always, always need this. There is no advanced stage of Islamic learning where you will go beyond these three things. Right? Now, there are different ways to begin. Alright? One is a random beyond listening, random course attending, random reading that all of you already know how to do. Okay, there are several systematic ways to do this. So let's start with the first one, Qur'an al-Karim. Obviously the first systematic way would be to sit down with a alim ba'amul from ahl dhikr from ahl-taqwa, from salihin, who at least, if not maybe a full level mufassir himself, but has learned from them, has been an adept and student and apprentice to mufassirun, right? And to ask them to systematically guide you through tafsir of the entire Qur'an. That could be one way to begin this. Second way would be uh, not to do the entire Qur'an in the beginning, right? Ultimately, you want to progress to that. But to begin uh, rather with a selection of surahs. For some people, you know, if you really do an in-depth tafsir, surah Baqarah, for some people, they can't even last in that. They find it too heavy, too detailed. Uh, they say, oh, you know, couldn't we start with surah Kahf or surah Waqiyah or... I read Surah Kaf on Fridays. Maybe I could learn about that first because I already recite that a lot. Maybe I re- recite Surah Yasin a lot, Surah Mulk a lot. So that could be another way. Okay, you take some selection of surahs. You might even identify them yourself. Like I said, spiritual. What surahs do you recite more? What do you connect with you more? Let's start with what you know and let's see how far you can go. Let's say there's somebody who says, I recite Surah Mulk every night. I say, okay, let's see how far you can go in tafsir of Surah Mulk. And let's see how far that additional tafsir will give you more feelings about Surah Mulk. And let's just run with that for some time before you even move to any other part of Quran. That could be one way to do it. Another way is that there are different ways that different ulama have done these selections from Quran. So one selection is what we try to do for our Quranic studies course in Isan Institute is that what I tried to do was go in the Hadith and any and every surah which Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned some fazila, some virtues, some merit, like Surah Yusuf, like Surah Kaf, that you start with those, right? Another way could be to start with those passages which Allah subhanahu wa begins with, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. That okay, at least let me understand that when Allah has addressed me as alladhina amanu and told me to do something, let me learn those things first. Another would be to, okay, let me start by looking at the Asma al-Husna in Quran. Another way could be, and that's the next workshop we have planned for you in April, inshallah, is to go through all the du'as in the Qur'an. All the du'as in Qur'an, inshallah ta'ala. Alright, that could be another way to do it. Another way some people do it, for the social reality part, so let me show you that also while we go, because I haven't shown you too much of that, is to say, okay, let me do look at those passages in Qur'an where Allah ta'ala mentions all the problems, pitfalls, deviations of past communities. And then understand how and where the Ummah might go away today. What can the Ummah today learn from the mistakes of Qawm Ad, of Qawm Thamud, from the Bani Israel, etc., etc. That could be another way. Selection. All of these selections would not go beyond three to five Jews. Right? So you're talking about really a very, you know, small introductory entry point. Right? Here, uh, there could be other ways also. Right? I give you enough examples. There can be other ways where to begin. Another way to begin in Quran is to increase your, to improve your tajweed. Alright. Sometimes when you recite better, means more properly, 
that opens up more nur of the Qur'an. No doubt if you totally understand, it's not going to open up the ilm of Qur'an. But it opens up more nur of Qur'an, shifa of Qur'an. So as mentioned, this Qur'an is a shifa. It's a healer for the hearts. All right? Uh, sometimes it helps your concentration. So there's a barakah in reciting properly. You will understand this. There's a sweetness when you recite properly. And the sweetness of reciting properly will enable you, inshallah, to get the sweetness of the qurb of Allah Ta'ala. Another way is tahfiz, to memorize more, so that you can use some new ayahs, new surahs when you pray. Otherwise, some people, they just use walasr and inna tina kukothar and kul yal kafirun and kul and every single sunnah, nafil salah that they pray. The only time they ever go outside the last 20 surahs is if they happen to pray behind an imam in jama'ah, then whatever he recites, they get to hear it. But every, any and every prayer, they pray on their own. This you do in lunchtime. And, yeah. So, they don't memorize. So to mem- Even if you memorize just two, three ayahs. You know, there's some ayahs, it depends on the local imam of your masjid. There's some imams who are very fond of certain passages and they recite them quite often in Fajr. And if you become a regular Fajr muktidi behind them, you almost memorize that yourself, right? If there's any passage like that, that as soon as the imam says the first three words, you know where he's going, you've almost got it. Just find it in the Quran, memorize it and start using it yourself. And then rework it, fix your tajweed just in that passage, learn the tafsir of just that passage, try to build it, do everything you can to experience it. All right? These are the places you should... I'm giving you a few examples. Now you should be able... All of you should be able to think creatively for yourself now. And think how... And what I'm trying to create is a mizaj. A temperament. That look, you want to experience Quran. It's not going to happen on its own. <laughs> You're going to have to do these things. That, some of, some are all of these things that I'm talking about. You have to put your time in it, your effort in it, your heart in it. You have to have talab. And you have to put sa'i. You have to put effort in that journey and that Allah Ta'ala will give Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala will bestow He is a being of immense fuzzle alright second place is Sira it's very important that we know the life of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu right and I, I would say here don't try to be so systematic that first I will start with Nabi Adam Salam, learn all the lies of all the prophets it's going to be too late right start here start here in any case, because my personal feeling is that the lives of all of the other prophets should also be read in light of the seerah. The seerah is a shara, is a commentary on even the lives of the other anbiya and mursalin, alayhi salam ajma'in. Alright? Now here again, if option number one, systematic, find some scholar of seerah and systematically go through the entire seerah with him. Right? That could be a possibility. Second, pick some entry point, pick something, pick Fatih Makkah, pick Hijra, pick the two years after Fatih Makkah, pick the first two years, pick something small and read ten different Sira books, read that chapter. So I'm going to read the chapter on Fatih Makkah in ten books. Then when I do that, I'll get an idea. Then you won't have to ask me that which Sira book do you recommend. If you read ten, chap- ten authors on that chapter, you yourself will be able to tell which one inspires you more, which one's writing style you like more, which one, you know, you connect it more. You'll be able to tell yourself. You just need to read one chapter. I'm telling you, you just have to read one chapter in ten books, you'll know. It's okay if ten is too much, five, three, pick something, pick three, start with three if you want. You'll get an idea. You'll get an idea. Maybe you might say, I love all three, I'm going to read all three. 
That's also a good thing. You wouldn't have gotten that jazbah if I told you to read all three. But when you read one chapter from all three and fell in love with all three of the books, then you, read, then you truly will read all three. Just me giving you a list isn't going to do it. Because I've done this many times. I've given people many lists. And I can't remember, except for a few, anybody ever even coming back to me with the fall of the yeah, I read those books that you wrote down for me. Asking for lists, mash, I can think of hundreds of people. Maybe thousands even, if I wouldn't even, without even, but definitely hundreds who have asked me, tell me what book to read, tell me what book to read, make me a list, make me a syllabus, right? You have to dig in a little bit yourself and see, right? It's the syllabus that you choose for yourself that you end up reading, all right? But, you know, I will, uh, you know, let me finish the explanation and I will give you some, you know, because some people do need recommendations, so I will give you some recommendations. All right. Third thing is Sunnah and Hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu So why don't I start with this? I would recommend to you Riyadh Salihin, right? A simple Riyadh Salihin. Right? Simple means without any of these crazy polemical footnotes, you know. Because it's I always feel it's very unfair when a person takes a great scholar's work and then adds her own ideological footnotes. I said, look, you should publish that under your own name. If anybody really wants to hear what you think, they'll buy it. I have no problem with that. You should write it separately. But to use Imam Nawirantha's name and know that people are going to buy his work because they want to learn the hadith of Nabi Karim that he com- compiled and then to sneak in your stuff along with it, that's not a nice thing to do, right? Uh, so the Riyadh Salih of Imam Nawirantha has been translated actually in two at least English translations that I'm aware of and is definitely has been translated into Urdu and the Arabic original obviously is there. Alright? Uh, this is uh, Imam Nayyatha compiled this work of Hadith particularly for this Niyya and he was a great Hadith scholar that if people want to read Hadith on their own what should they read? Alright? So this I'll show you it's not the ulama have this concern they have this figure they did the work. So then when you know that the Hadith scholars have actually thought about that, that if somebody wants to read Hadith on their own, which should they read, then you should read that book, right? And if you want to start even with something smaller, then obviously the smallest is his Arbain, which is Imam Manawirumatul's collection of 40 Hadith, all right? So one could start with that and one could move to Riyadh uh, Salihin, the complete by Imam Manawirumatul. And those of you who feel more audio, uh, so there's a very good rendering in Urdu, uh, Mufti Ahmed Khan Puri. If you Google this, Ahmed Khan Puri, K-H-A-N-P-U-R-I, so you can listen to his whole Urdu uh, series on Riyadh Salihin. That's all there on the website for you to download. All right. Some people, they have a lot of time in commuting and car and they prefer audio. All right. Um, okay. Uh, and here, uh, so, so I began with the recommendation first, and let me explain. In the Sunan Hadith, for the average user, for the non-scholar, first and foremost for you are the non-legal Hadith. Again, this is also a great tragedy that different polemical ideological groups, in order to convert you to their ideology, they insist on giving you courses with the legal Hadith. The legal Hadith, believe me, are a very wide maze that requires navigation skills. Right? It's been, it can be, 100% can be done. And it is done. And it's done at a level of brilliance. All right? 
You need the hadith that inspire your heart, that talk about Jannah, that talk about Jahannam, that talk about Adam, that talk about Akhlaq, that you know, you, you talk about Tawbah, that talk about Ikhlas. And Alhamdulillah, this is exactly what Imam al Nawi has done. So it's not my position. This is the fact that Imam al Nawi has almost, with hardly few exceptions, has included no real legal hadith and no hadith on matters of ikhtilaf between jurists in Israel, the Salih, means this was the understanding of the hadith scholars that the person who wants to read and study hadith on their own, they should not do the legal hadith. Alright? And Ibn Hajar Asqalani, he, he compiled the, that hadith for Al-Balugh al-Maram for Shafi Fuqaha, for Shafi jurists, not for ordinary people. Right? Okay? Uh, so this should be, and you should ponder over the hadith. It's not about the numbers that, okay, I read 50 a day. No, no, no. How many can you practice and experience in a day? Read one and think how you can practice it in your life. How is it can, it can change your life? How it can bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Keep working at it. And then that's the real question to ask a scholar. Rather than ask us what book to read, show up and say, I read this chapter in Riyadh al-Salaheen. And out of the 12 hadith in that chapter, there are 10 that I've been able to figure out what's the lesson for me in my life in terms of practice experience. These other two I can't figure out what's the lesson for me. Can you guide me on how I can practice and experience these two also? That's a question to ask. You don't ask the ulama and imams the right questions. If you ask a question like that, believe me, he'll sit down with you and he'll give you time. You have to show your talab, you have to bring true talab. Right? All right? So this was my uh, basic thing uh, here on where to begin. On Sira, uh, there's a very, actually a very good book. I, I'm going to give you the, the more diff, more longer one. And it's in Arabic and in Urdu, not in English. I'll give you some English recommendations also. It's called Sirat al-Halabi. So there was an alama, alama Halabi, who lived in the medieval period. And he basically took the best of all of the classical and late classical Sira works and took only the most authentic and authoritative narrations in them. Uh, and if I remember, the Urdu one is three volumes. Siratul Halabi. Halabi. Arabic and Urdu, but unfortunately not yet in English. Those of you who uh, want a shorter work in Urdu, uh, then there is a sira by Malana Muhammad Idris Khan Delvi Ramtane. Uh, and if you want a very short one, there's one by Mufti Muhammad Shafi Ramtane. Then, uh, obviously, there's the Sira. There's so many works of Sira, actually. Alama Shibli Numani has his own angles and very interesting things, especially about the social reality part and the historical part. Very good for that. Uh, for those of you who are in English, let me shift to English. Uh, there's also the, the Sealed Nectar. I think that, I don't know if that's available in Urdu or not. It probably is. Uh, it's an Arabic work, uh, but this is translated in English. It's available in Urdu. I don't, I don't know under which name. That's the Arabic name. Okay, so it's available in Urdu under its Arabic original name. Uh, and then there's a very interesting book that came out recently in English. Unfortunately, it's a bit expensive. Uh, the person priced it that way because he gives all the donation. He doesn't take any money from the book. He gives all of it to, uh, in fact, two, three, four different institutions of Islamic learning in America. Uh, it's called Revelation, the life, the life or the story of uh, the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. And for teenagers and university youth, this is probably the very single best Sira book I can recommend. Because it's written in a textbook style. 
What does that mean? There's charts, there's maps, there's figures, there's glossaries, there are timelines, there are chronologies. If you really want to study Sirah, because sometimes, in this, it's a very interesting thing, because this person writes this about himself in the introduction. He says he was listening to a Sirah, a series of talks on Sirah by Hamza Yusuf. That's also for your audio types. Uh, Imam Hamza Yusuf has this English audio series on Sirah. And he writes that, you know, I was listening to this and I got so confused. There were so many names and of people and so many dates and so many events and so many wars and so many tribes and Banu this. He said, I couldn't figure it out. And then he says that Hamza Yusuf, during the talks, himself said that some of you are probably getting confused by the names and dates. I wish somebody would compile all these things down. Something like that, I can't remember. There's There's some story like that, he says, in the prologue. So he says, I decided to do it. And I took pen and paper and I started writing down all the names and all the dates and the sequence and the chronology and the timeline. And before you know it, he wrote a whole book on Syria. It took him 13 years. He's a doctor. He's a medical doctor, anesthesiologist in America. Uh, but his, And he had it very like expert uh, layout and design. And it's an incredible uh, resource of learning. Uh, somebody recently told me there's an Urdu book similar to that. Uh, that we have that in the Sound Institute. Do you remember its name? We don't know its name, but he'll find out the name and we'll tell you tomorrow, inshallah. Is it? Okay, maybe it's called Sirius Encyclopedia by Dar es Salaam New Edition, right? No, 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 that 11 volumes. No, this is a single volume, this is 11 volumes. Okay, okay, so there are 11 of them, that's if you really want to go very deep. What I, the English one I'm telling you is one volume. It's one book. I have it actually. I can show it to you. Uh, all right. Anyway, there's a lot. As you can see, I just started. You can. There's a lot of. You need to see what works for you, what you have access to. Uh, but the point is, you need to start learning. Uh, for Quran, Kareem, for Quran, I still very strongly recommend that you have a living teacher. Uh, even though, no doubt, there's a lot of tafsir in Urdu and English that I could recommend. Uh, just because I will be very honest with you. Uh, the people who didn't have a living teacher for Quran, a lot of them went astray. Uh, on my, I'm not saying astray from the faith, but they went astray in some understanding, on some hukum of sharia, on some historical narration. Uh, so I've seen too many dangers and pitfalls from that. With a teacher, along with a teacher, no doubt, then you have to have your own reading and your own study, along with having a teacher. Just like universities, right? When you take a professor, it doesn't mean you don't do any reading. No, no, it doesn't mean that. You have a professor, but you have a syllabus. So don't ever get fooled by somebody that, oh, if I tell you to take a teacher, it means I'm telling you to be blind. No, no, no. You have a professor, you have a syllabus, you do your readings, but you have a professor also. You need to have both. And this combination of readings plus professor that works so well in every other system of learning, in every other discipline, in every other field of knowledge, Believe me, it works so well in Islamic learning also, right? So you need a syllabus of readings and you need a professor and an instructor, all right? Uh, but we have found, I mean, if you, this Maruful Quran and Anwarul Bayan, these two are in English and in Urdu, obviously, uh, and they, I think, truly capture the classical tafsir tradition. Uh, and then there are many other modernist and sort of ideological tafasir out there. Uh, then that depends on your own ideological persuasion. Okay, But these two, I think, generally pretty much just capture the classical Islamic tradition of tafsir, the Arabic tafasirs 
you know, sort of coalesced into Urdu and English. Alright? So this is where you have to begin. And you have to keep working on it because the greatest guidance, the greatest practice, the greatest experience, the greatest feelings comes from these three things. Right? Comes from there. Obviously there are things that aren't here. Because I said where to begin. I'm not giving you everything. I haven't mentioned stories of Sahaba. There's many things that aren't. Islamic history is not here. There are many things that aren't on this first page. Alright? If you move to the second slide, slide number 13. You can show all of slide number 13. This what it says where to begin, but I would say that if you want to continue, if you want to continue, where would you go? Right? So slide 13 and 14 together, I'm going to mention to you six things that once you have a good solid foundation in Quran, Sirah, Sunnah, and Hadith, then if you want to go further, where would you go? So there's six things. Three are on the slides here in the next. So I'll just read them to you. The three on slide 13 are Islamic spirituality, classical Islamic learning, Arabic. And on slide 14 is Islamic studies, necessary fiqh, Islamic scholarly tradition. All right. By Islamic spirituality, I mean purification of the heart, what we call tazkiyah. How to rid yourself of anger, of envy, of unlawful lust. How to adorn yourself in the good adab, good akhlaq of humility, truth, sincerity. This is a very important thing pertaining to practice and experience, but you do need knowledge. There is a knowledge in our deen how to do these things. So you need that knowledge, but it's focused on practice and experience. Similarly, the knowledge of how to concentrate more on salah, how to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more, how to feel more in du'as. This is also proper knowledge that is geared towards practice and experience. Classical Islamic learning means uh, that a person reads some of the great authors of the past. That might be Imam Ghazali, that might be Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziri, that might be somebody earlier, might be somebody more contemporary, might be some ulama of Hind, right? But you engage basically... Uh, Authored works, right? I mean, obviously the Quran, Sira, Sira, authored works, but it's about the Prophet We're talking about engaging authored works. And the third thing that's on this slide is Arabic, all right? If you really want to go deeper, then ultimately you will have to learn the Arabic language. That said, uh, I don't think that all of you should necessarily make that intention beyond basic Quranic Arabic, because once you have basic Quranic Arabic, there's actually a lot you can do in Urdu and English now. So the amount of knowledge that you would be able to get through Urdu and English may well be something that could occupy you for years and might be sufficient for a life of practice and experience. The only exception, like if you notice I mentioned, is Quranic Arabic. Quranic Arabic is something else and classical Arabic is something else. Quranic Arabic, there are certain short courses that would enable you to understand about 80 to 90% of Quran by listening to it. That's sufficient for you, right? Classical Arabic means you can pick up Ghazali, you can pick up tafsir, you can pick up askalani, you can pick up and read it as fluently as you're able to read English or Urdu, that's a lot of effort to get that level of Arabic. It's a lot of effort. And I just think that for people who aren't doing scholarship full-time, do you really want to put all that effort into getting that fluent in Arabic because that same amount of effort you could have actually learned the knowledge itself in Urdu and English, right? Uh, but anyway, I mean, uh, just so you know, I mean, that's something that's there. If you look at the next slide, 14, Islamic studies. Now, by Islamic studies, I mean the type of thing I'm doing for you today. The study of Islam, right? And to study it yourself and to be aware of how it's studied and to be aware of how it's being taught, especially if you want to do da'wah, all right? Uh, so then you will find books on ulumul quran ulumul hadith usulul fiqh You'll find books on history, 
right? Basically, any good Islamic studies department, Islamic studies curriculum. Necessary fiqh. Necessary fiqh means, fiqh means the understanding of halal and haram. So whatever is necessary for you, obviously tahara, salah is necessary for everybody. If you're married, the fiqh of marriage is necessary for you. If you like to make du'a and zikr, the fiqh of du'a and zikr is necessary for you. If you have a business, the fiqh of business is necessary to you, right? Yes, no doubt, sometimes you might rely on the knowledge of another person, an alim mufti. If you don't have the knowledge yourself, there's a backup there. But the more you know yourself about those areas and matters that are necessary to you, the better. And the last thing is Islamic tradition is also something I'm doing for you and did for you last time, is to actually learn and see how some of the great ulama tackled some of these problems. All right? This introduction took a bit longer than I wanted. Uh, one very important thing I wanted to do for you today, and so actually what I'm going to do is the questions that you have on session one, I will just take them along. Normally I stop now, and I would have done 15 minutes of questions, but I will take it together in the afternoon session because the last two slides is something I have to do for you. We'll do it later, inshallah. You'll see what I'm doing. Roadblocks along the way. This is a very important thing uh, um, because actually what I did, where to begin, you could maybe get that from many other people. This is one thing I have experienced in roadblocks along the way. Experience number one, myself, because the very first time I began studying and learning Islam was 1992 and I'm still doing it, so it's 24 years. And alhamdulillah, we have taught thousands of students in different levels of Islamic studies and Islamic learning. And so I've identified some roadblocks. Along. This is a real, actually, one of the major things I wanted to tell you. I just took a look at the time. Uh, it's really hard, you know, when we try to get together material. It's only the first time you do it, you really know how long it's going to take. Otherwise, you have no idea uh, how long it might take. You know, they I could have even been done by 12.30. There was even, you know, Allah alam, right? Alhamdulillah, that almost never happens to me, <laughs> that I get done early. All right, roadblocks along the way, so to show all of slide 16 to them, so then you'll understand why this is very important. When you look at slide 16, you'll understand this needs to be explained. All right? Now, this not, not going to happen to all of you necessarily, but the point is it happens to some people some of the time, and they need a lot of guidance then. It's a, it's a, it's a critical juncture for them. All right? So the first thing is the difference between questioning faith versus seeking knowledge. Right? Some people, they read this poem and they get scared. For example, they come across a hadith and they know the hadith is authentic. That's not the issue. But they, they don't understand it. They, they find the meaning problematic. It's a reality. Their heart and mind is troubled. I've told you before, I'm a very frank person. Their heart and mind is troubled by that hadith. Now, unless you know what to do at this point, you, you could mess it up, right? And one way of messing up is to close the hadith and forget about it. You're messing it up because shaitan knows you. Shaitan watched you read that. Let me explain to you what shaitan can do. Shaitan watches you read it and he knows that you are disturbed by it. You can close the hadith book and promise never to open again. Shaitan has opened you up and he's going to promise never to leave you again. It might not happen that day. It might not happen that week. But shaitan knows. He's got you. He's got you on something. He's got dirt on you. He knows that there's a hadith or an ayah Quran that bothers you. And he can come back at you any day, any time in your life with that. Alright? Through waswasa. You understand what I'm saying? So initially it might seem that that's the wise move. And, and that might be the wise move that very first day. Right? You have to put it away until you're able to resolve it. That is true. But you must find a way to resolve it and you must resolve it. 
You can't put it away forever. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't put it away forever. It might. It's a danger that shaitan will use it to attack you. It could come back to haunt you. All right. This could even happen to you in Riyadh al-Salihin. It's not being legal or non-legal. It has nothing to do with it. This can happen to you in tafsir of your favorite surah. Right? You be, I mean, this could even happen to you in sirah. All right? Sometimes it happens to people that they read something and they don't understand. They say, look, I don't understand why the person did that. Right? Okay, yes. If, if Okay, now let me explain. Because this is a very important thing. And, and this I may even continue this a little bit. After, because I'm going to do this slowly because this is very important. It's a very delicate matter. Alright? It's a very delicate matter. First thing is you have to be honest with yourself. If something disturbs you, it disturbs you. That's it now. Just accept that. Be honest about that. Yes, you can feel guilty to the extent that it's good to feel guilty. You should feel guilty. You know, I feel, I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. that something you said in Quran or something that Paul some said or something he did in his life that I'm learning about. It shouldn't bother me. It's only when you feel that, then you'll really resolve to sort it out, right? Look, what do you do in your other areas of life when you come across something like this? You know that you have to resolve it. The only solution is resolution. The only solution is resolution, right? Remember that this little, we can make a bullet point of this, right? (laughs) In fact, Farooq, you should be thinking of what things to add in the, in the PowerPoints. This is just my first idea, right? For round two, you should be adding. All right? Okay. Now what you have to do is that clearly uh, you couldn't resolve it on your own, right? Because obviously initially if you have a doubt, then a person thinks, ponders, but it means you got stuck. It means you need help and you have to seek help. You need help and you have to seek help. All right? Might be a friend, might be an alim, right? But you need help and you have to seek help, all right? And like I said, you should wait a little bit also. Wait a little bit. Because sometimes when we act too quickly on these things, then it starts disturbing you more. If you make it an immediate matter, that no, i got to resolve it tonight, and you can't resolve it by tonight, you get even more disturbed. You get more nishitan, he just wraps you up in it. He wraps you up in it. He makes it an obsession. He eats you alive with it. Right? Wait. Put it away and wait. And then seek help. Find help. And then go about it slowly. Go about it gradually. And don't give up till it gets resolved. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. Uh, it's coming. I'll just show you. You flip, flip to slide 17 and show it to them. Failing to understand and hard cases. I'm going to do a hard case for you. A very hard case. Something I've never spoken about publicly is that hard. Something I'm even too scared to talk about myself, right? And I'm not so sure, I'm still not so sure looking at all of you, really should I do it or not? Because I'm going to myself fumble and stumble along the way. That's how hard it is. But I wanted to show you that, that we can fumble and stumble along the way. It's okay, all right? You can fumble and stumble on one particular matter while still walking upright and running on the rest of your deen. That's what I need to somehow train you on. As opposed to when I fumbled and stumbled on this matter, I fell flat in my whole deen. All right, it's a very hard case. It's not free will. Free will is also a hard case that's coming later. Before that, I'm going to do even harder one, an even harder one. All right. Okay. The other thing is that I want you to always tell yourself that you're not questioning faith. You're not questioning iman. You have a question. You're not questioning Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Don't equate that. 
all the atheism, agnosticism, secularism wants you to think that. Don't have that fear. You are not questioning Allah Ta'ala. You are not questioning the truth of your deen. You have a question, but you're not questioning your faith. You're not questioning your deen. You're not questioning your iman. You're seeking knowledge. You're seeking knowledge. Alright? Okay. So basically this is what I was doing. How to deal with this is I, mean, I can't start it, obviously, because at 1.15 we break for the Salah. Uh, but, I mean, this is what I'm talking to you about is how to deal with Doubts and skepticisms and struggling to understand. So if you move to slide 17, failing to understand. So this part I will do for you and the hard cases part I'll do when I come, when we, immediately when we resume inshallah. You also have to accept this, that sometimes there will be some things that you fail to understand. That itself is, it can be a resolution. And no problem. I don't understand this one thing about Sharia, about Hadith, about Sunnah, about Sirah, about Quran, about Tafsir. I don't understand this one thing. It could be a few things, but start with one. I understand this one thing. It doesn't matter. It's not going to take me away from my deen. It doesn't take me away from Iman. Why? Because there's so many other reasons why I believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala other than just one thing. It's not like this was the only thing. If this was the only reason and the only thing, then yes, obviously you might end up abandoning your faith. You have to remind yourself of that. For example, I get, and I, especially when I used to teach at university, used to get a lot of students, exactly they would make this mistake. They heard one thing, and especially, normally they got misinformation or propaganda from one of the atheist Marxist professors about Islam. But it shook them up so badly. It shook them up so badly, they, they were questioning their very iman. So no, no, you can question this matter. You can question this. Don't make that leap that you have to question your whole iman, your whole deen because of this. All right, and you might not be able to understand. What do you do when you fail to understand? This is an important thing in our deen. You have to believe in it without understanding it. This it, you have to accept that. And if somebody calls us blind, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with blind faith. If be having blind faith about one matter enables me to keep my complete perception faith about everything else. Alright? That means you will have to believe in it without understanding it. 99% of the time, these things have nothing to do with your own amal, with your own practice. They won't be things that you'll be asked about on the Day of Judgment. You're going to see when I, when I do, even free will of it. You just think that after Zohar, we're going to do two examples. One really hard and very awkward. And <laughs> you'll understand when I say devastating. And second, free will. And you will fail to understand it completely when I do it after Zohar. Because I, I don't even have complete understanding of those things. So obviously the person who is teaching you doesn't have complete understanding. There's no way you can have a hope that students have complete understanding. Right? But you can believe in it completely while this is the punchline. While understanding it partially. That's why I told you all of this. While you go through the motions, you make the effort, you go for the resolution... Because the partial understanding will be enough to save your iman. Don't undervalue partial understanding. Yes, if you have zero understanding, you'll always be in a crisis. You try to resolve it, you try to learn about it, you try to understand it, definitely, and that I can tell you, definitely you will get after the door. You will get a, not just small, you will get a very, you know, almost complete, you can say almost complete understanding. You have to get... As complete an understanding as you can. Put it that way. I just thought of a third example I'll do for you. 
If time willing, inshallah. You have to get as complete an understanding as you can. That will save you. And that's all we're muqallaf of. La yukallafullahu nafsan illa wus'aha. Allah Ta'ala will not take us to task, not hold us to account, except to the extent that He Himself, now I'm, I'm translating this with commentary or to understand it, that He Himself has given you wus'ah. That wus'ah came from Him also. Right? So whatever ability of understanding, learning, knowledge, access to all of them Allah Ta'ala has endowed you with, when you max it out, you will experience that Allah Ta'ala will give you sukoon in your heart about this matter, even though you don't understand it. That's a myth. Again, that's the secular-based approach, that sukoon only comes from complete rational dissection and understanding and analysis. Sukoon comes from Allah. But the sukoon will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you try your best and try your hardest. So the resolution will come from a sukoon that comes from Him, not from an understanding that comes from you. But your trying for that understanding will invite and attract the sukoon that comes from Him. And that's what I'm going to try to show you. Now, this, this is not going to happen, in, the sukoon is not going to happen instantly. Because I will, what we say in English, I'm going to open up a big can of worms. And I won't be able to put this as a khadanak cheese. Once I take the lid off, I won't be able to put the lid back on. It might even disturb you people. It might even disturb you for a few more days. But I hopefully, hopefully, you will be able to see this, that even a partial understanding is sufficient. Alright? A partial understanding is sufficient. And that's really the, you know, the way I would, that's, that's the approach I refer to what I call the hard cases. All right, uh, and so we end over here uh, because it, uh, so just to go back and show you, if we go all the way back to slide number two. So slide number two. Slide number two. Slide number two. Today's schedule. All the way, yeah, yeah, right before this. That's it. Today's schedule? Yeah. Okay, maybe you should add numbers to the slides, right? Okay. So, one uh, fifteen to one forty-five p.m. is the Salah break, all right? Uh, there are two or three toilets, three if I, two or three toilets downstairs. Uh, I'm, I'm, talking, I'm addressing the men right now. So for the men, there are two or three toilets downstairs. Otherwise, you can, if you need to use the toilet, you can use it in the masjid. We will all pray Dhor Salah in the masjid, which is a short walk from here. Those of you who are familiar, you can lead those who don't know. There are enough old faces here that I can see who know how to walk to the masjid. You can just sort of follow the crowd behavior in matters like this. All right? And then you'll come back around 145 or 150. And then there is supposed to be some very light sandwich type lunch available for you whether to purchase or I don't even know or whether to give you for free I have no idea about that and you will eat as little of that as you need in order to last the afternoon because if you overeat that will and those of you who remember last year I told you this the more you eat the less you will understand and the less and the more sleepy you will be in the afternoon session so you will eat as little as you humanly can right and then a little bit more Meritra said and then 2.15 we will start. Okay, so now you know the morning schedule also because I'm very fair to those who like to be punctual 
I will start at 11.15 a.m. And those who don't like to be punctual, 11 a.m. Nice Sunday, 11 a.m. Desi time and 11.15 a.m. my time. All right? So it's, it's up to you now. If you're a person who comes on the dot, you don't have to come before 11.15 a.m. unless you want a good seat. Right? Uh, and if you don't come on the dot, tell yourself it starts at 11 a.m. All right? And the online listeners also, because some, you know, they should also know that if you, you need to only log in at 11.15, I won't start speaking before 11.15. I will try my best to start at 2.15 after the break. So that's another reason I want you to eat a little bit less so that you actually don't spend so much time on that. All right? Uh, and normally I take what I, what I had normally wanted to do, not normally, what I had wanted to do today was the last 15 minutes of each session would be some type of Q&A on that session and the last 15 minutes overall, which I have 4.15 to 4.30, I could even open it up to a more general discussion and interaction, maybe not necessarily on the sessions that day. But let's see, because we have a lot of material and I think the cases I discussed with you after Zora themselves will raise so many questions, that unlikely that you will have any off-topic questions today because you will have a lot of on-topic questions. All right. And the last thing to tell you is that 4.45 is Asr Salah. So we end at 4.30. 4.45 is Asr. Now this is not on the schedule because this is optional for you. For me, I will come back after Asr and sit here. And from Asr to Maghrib, I will sit here also so that anybody who wants to have any further discussion and interaction with me can do that from Asr to Maghrib. Here we ask the people who have been with us longer and are older students or more senior students or more formal students, they should give the newcomers a chance to have that interaction with me between Asr to Maghrib. All right? And that is all the explanation I want to give you. So now we just go immediately straight to the masjid. For the ma- for the women, there is... Uh, all your facilities are downstairs itself for wudu and prayer. Everything you will do downstairs, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Wa akhirat dana. Anahamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Subhanaka